Welcome to Care Talk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Well, John, we have a repeat guest, and I'm a little confused because this is uh, Patrick Kennedy. And last time we talked about mental health parity and how everything was going to be fixed, I thought it was all fixed by now. We've got nothing left to talk about, but let, let's see if there is anything. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you, John. And thank you, Dave. It's good to be back with both of you. And congratulations on the success of this podcast. And let me just say how much I appreciate uh, how successful you've been and trying to get a message out that's important, especially around mental health and addiction. I'm happy to be one of those you talk to who can give you a little bit of an update. So um, I wish I could have said, even after the bill passed, that I had a chance to author um, you know, about 13 years ago, uh, the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, that you know, after the administration pushed uh, rules through implementing it, that it was all done. Here we are over a decade later, and uh, the GAO just a week ago uh, came out with a scathing assessment of payers' accountability to the mental health parity law. I mean, it was particularly galling given the fact that uh, over the course of the pandemic, when mental health crisis really ran parallel to the, to the COVID crisis, because they're one and the same, uh, the denials continued. And uh, that's got to change, especially coming out of this uh, pandemic when we can focus uh, full time on the mental health uh, aftermath of it a threat as well as a promise, Patrick. What's that going to mean? No, no. I, well, you know, the Congress just last uh, last cycle in the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which is part of the COVID relief, passed uh, real amendments to the parity law now requiring health plans to have on file at a moment's notice their detailed uh, analytics for how they've applied the law across medical, surgical, and mental health. That was not required under the previous uh, guidance. That's brand new, and that was a result of a legislative initiative that got put in the last appropriations bill. So, you know, even Secretary Acosta, the Republican labor secretary who preceded uh, Secretary Walsh, uh, really found that payers were not doing what they were supposed to do. And he had a different take from a Democrat. He said that, you know, he just didn't like how private payers were shifting the cost of these patients onto the taxpayer. And as a, as a Republican, he didn't like the fact taxpayers were essentially subsidizing private insurance, which I thought was a pretty interesting angle. That, that's an angle Republicans can make. And Senator Cassidy, uh, also joined him in that initiative. So we have bipartisan support. What does that practically mean in a pandemic for someone who wants to get mental health, doesn't quite know how to, like, this has been a brutal time for so many families and individuals. How does, all, I mean, get, cutting through the clutter of the healthcare system, how does that, how does that get, how does that affect access? So it's, it's all about access. Um, we need access and we need quality, but we need access almost first while we're trying to improve the system. And of course, we're catching up from years of neglect when insurers basically uh, carved out mental health, left it to the side, put a small capitated reimbursement on it, and then didn't think twice about it. 
now major employers in this country are demanding that their third-party administrators give them adequate networks because they're worried, to your point, that employees who need mental health for themselves or their family cannot spend six weeks waiting for their first appointment because there aren't an adequate number of mental health providers in network. We have a violation essentially of parity when an insurer has an inadequate or phantom network of providers in mental health because essentially that's forcing people to go outside in network and pay higher um, out-of-pocket co-pays for their out-of-network care, which they would not have to pay if they were trying to get diabetes care, cardiovascular disease, or oncology, or whatever it is. That's where parity, which is means you know equal, it does it really falls on its face because this is part of a historic anemic reimbursement of of providers, which of course, as you know, because you've really led the way, John, care centrics about addressing this just huge disparity in uh, in salaries among CEOs and and staff. Mental health providers are lowest end of the rung. And no wonder there aren't many of them. And that is, there's not much of an incentive for people to go into uh, mental health for, as a career. So this is basically legislation and regulation that would mean insurance would ensure access. I mean, that's really what this, to, to, to real care. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. That, that's what we're talking about. And even more importantly, enforcement. So we wrote the law that said, you know, you had to eliminate the higher copays, higher deductibles, higher premiums, and lower lifetime caps. I blew through my mental health and addiction treatment cap when I was 22 years old already. Uh, you know, what we have in this country is we address the quantitative treatment limits. Those are the ones I just spoke about, but we have not fully implemented the non-quantitative treatment limits, which are pre-authorization, concurrent review, retroactive review, medical necessity determination, essentially. And the Witt case in Northern California, United Healthcare Witt versus Witt, really was a model case on the violation of a, of a payer's fiduciary responsibility to their subscribers. Because remember, when people buy insurance, they're buying mental health as part of their insurance. So when the insurer denies equal coverage, they're denying, they're, they're not following their obligation to, to provide that insurance that was already purchased. I don't want to do too deep on what's going wrong until we've really established, like how big a challenge, this has got to be a much bigger challenge in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, everybody, there, there's a huge unaddressed anxiety and depression based on all of the statistics, Pat. But I just, I've got to think this is getting worse, not better from a patient perspective. There's no doubt that we have an epidemic of mental health along with the pandemic. And uh, and I will say for the payers, they're they're seeing the the uh, light now. You know, they they know that the people they work for, Fortune 500 companies and beyond, are not going to have them on managing their benefits unless they can fix this, which is good. And the payers, to their credit, are really insisting that it's quality care, which which 
I really support. In fact, my former colleague, Jim Ramstead, God rest his soul, Republican from Minnesota, both of us were as equally outraged by people buying mental health that didn't get them better because it never followed the evidence-based protocols like cognitive behavioral therapy, which we know really help people gain recovery. So uh, this is a moment where we need not only access, but we need quality. And uh, I'm also proud, John, to make a pitch for Psych Hub, uh, which I had a chance to uh, co-found along with uh, Marjorie Morrison. And, and that's trying to help the payers make sure that all their providers follow the latest in evidence-based treatments for particular diagnoses. Because in the past, it was a one-size-fits-all where a therapist would see someone with grief in the morning and eating disorder in the afternoon and addiction you know, during the day. And of course, they all require different kind of skill sets. So Patrick, tell us a little bit about how you personally got into uh, a, a system that doesn't work for so many. What's your, what's your personal story? Well, I'm a person who is living in long-term recovery. For me, that means I haven't had to drink or use drugs since February 22nd, 2011. I, um, have been well known for being a person in recovery. I mean, I was arrested several times uh, at airports, uh, in boats, uh, uh, and most notably when I tried to drive my car to the, into the Capitol at 3 a.m. in the morning. So I, I pretty well uh, established as a certified uh, drug addict. And yet, when I went to my physician, and of course, he knew who I was, you know, he had gotten the appointment. And he even asked me about my cousin, Caroline, you know, who was ambassador to Japan at the time. Um, he then asked me all about my asthma and my cholesterol. And of course, I have a big scar on my back from an original surgery that really kicked off my opioid addiction. And I told him at the beginning, I said, my biggest health problem is, is that I have the disease of addiction. And then by the end of the uh, doctor's appointment, I asked him to prescribe me some uh, Percocets because I said, you can imagine with the scar on my back, it you know, flares up once in a while. And if I can't get back to you in time, can you just give me something to hold me over? You know, part of my old kind of rap I had perfected over years for procuring drugs before there was a you know, prescription drug monitoring program in place. And you know what? He broke out his prescription pad. It was like within literally half an hour of me telling him I was uh, someone who was in recovery. And it's because he was so focused on his EMR cue sheet, which had him ask questions about my asthma. Which inhaler do you use? Do you have problems breathing? How many times would you, do you use your inhaler? Do you use uh, steroids? I mean, there's nothing in his um, questions about addiction. And there's nothing in his own training for him to know how to treat addiction. So um, then I proceeded to, I, I think I might have told you guys the story last time I saw you, uh, going into the emergency room uh, not long thereafter, when, by the way, it should have been in my EMR that I was an addict. And so they asked me, what are you allergic to? And I said, penicillin and opioids. And the, the nurse kind of laughed. She'd never heard that before. And of course, they sutured me up for this uh, injury that I'd had. And then, of course, because it's an ER, everyone's running in different directions. A, a new nurse comes in and hands me a script for Percocet. And uh, thankfully, my wife 
Amy had just walked into the emergency room and, and snapped it right out of my hands, even though my attic brain said, oh, well, I have a legitimate use for this. It'll only be for a few days, blah, blah, blah. Then fast forward, you know, just about two and a half, three years ago, I, I, we, you know, my wife and I've had five children. So she said enough already sent me to the urologist. I'm coming out of propofol. Uh, and they had already given me a couple Percocets. And I had said the same thing before going into that procedure. I said, I'm addicted uh, to opioids. And, and even with that, they, they still gave it to me. And, um, and my addict brain was off to the races because I wanted to fill the script. I went and I filled the script. I'm now probably six years into recovery. And I'm a, I'm a, I go to meetings all the time, um, but just shows you the power of this compulsion. But, but Patrick, the good thing is that, you know, all this is, of course, many years ago. And since we spoke, at least over the last two years, all of this has been now cleared up. And if this happened to somebody else, this, this, this is not happening. You're a unique case. And uh, everybody is now understands the dentist isn't given out uh, Percocets. The vet doesn't leave them around. You don't have too many and, and so on. So this is just you, right? And this is just like the history books. Yeah, I wish I that was the case. Um, I, I'm frankly, as I said previously, for people who have legitimate medical pain to get that um, those strong uh, opioids. But uh, clearly, we still have a challenge. Do you think it's a cultural breakdown between the, the the body and the mind that we still have these kind of arbitrary gates that we don't look we, we don't go through? We what? How do you explain the fact that after you've disclosed the fact that you're an addict, you're famous as an addict, that they would give you pills that would make you more I just, it's insane to me. Well, you know, equally insane during this pandemic, um, the, the rate of benzodiazepines that have been prescribed is off the charts. And the medical profession really under... Those are those are Xanax, Librium, uh, tranquilizers, all of which can be very addictive, and all of which are very difficult to detox from. I was also ad- addicted to Xanax, uh, so it, it's a it's a worrisome thing because the medical culture will throw a pill at you, and that's your care route is medication. It's not therapy, and. Um, we have to make sure therapy gets in there. But as I've said at the beginning, we just have inadequate access to therapy because there are too few providing therapy. So medication is dispensed, you know, 75% of all antipsychotics, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, all written by primary care docs who've had zero training. Um, and they're the front line of mental health. So, uh, John, we, we just did this report your friend John Sununu, Republican from New Hampshire, and I from the Bipartisan Policy um, Committee, and it calls for much greater reimbursement for primary care practices to build out their um, you know, network EMRs and to build out their access and reimbursement for collaborative care. Um, we need to do that because we're not going to be able to build a whole overnight separate mental health addiction system, which is why, which is what most docs want to do is just push it off to their mental health uh, cousins. 
this has got to be done by every doc, every provider in the country. It also sounds like every family member needs to be an advocate for any family member that might have a problem because the system is unsafe, either because of access or risk, it sounds like. So really, this is a call to arms, not just politically, but personally for families to protect their, 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 the most vulnerable people in the family. Because it doesn't sound like without advocacy, people are going to get the care they deserve, even if they paid for it or can manage the risk, even though it, it's, it's disclosed. And Patrick, along, along those lines, you know, you talk about uh, medication is given out for, for everything. And yet uh, there's another medication, uh, naloxone, that maybe is not used as much as it should be and may also really re- result, uh, may, may also be a form of advocacy. No question. You know, we, we are going to have over 100,000 deaths due to opioids this year when all the numbers are out. We're, we're 92,000 now. We were 78 maybe four months ago, according to latest stats, and they're all telling me it's going to be over 100,000. So the question is, how could we stop those deaths? One simple answer, have an available equivalent of an EpiPen, a naloxone uh, shot, um, or you know they can give it uh, nasally as well. But you know, the shot will be very important, particularly because most of the current opioid overdoses are driven by fentanyl, which is very potent and which um, really stays in the system. So the shot is really the best chance. And and they tell me, well, how do you know when to give the shot? Uh, they uh, People who are fellow addicts like me say, you'll wake up in a second if someone says you get, you're going to get a naloxone um, shot that if they don't wake up to that cuz there's everybody knows it's like a terrible dysphoric feeling that happens after you get the shot when you sober up so to speak um there then that's the time to give them the shot and the amazing thing to your point John is most family members treat addiction kind of like alcoholism let them sleep it off let them sleep it off when that's the worst thing to do when someone that you love is is uh, suffering from the disease of addiction. Um, so we, I just was out, in fact, uh, three weeks ago, distributing naloxone kits to sober homes in New Jersey, where I live now. If, you, if there is ever a place to have a naloxone kit, it's in a sober house. And yet they don't have them. Explain for folks who, who don't have family members or have personally gone through it, what a sober house is and why it's such a critical bridge for addicts. A sober house is for people who really don't have access like I did to long inpatient stay for my addiction. What they end up doing in, for most Medicaid uh, plans are, you know, discharge you after immediate detox and really not sufficient to helping you recover. But then they refer you to a sober house because that's like the most cost effective way and sober houses, if they're not properly um, have the proper oversight, are really opportunities for a lot of dysfunctional behavior to compound uh, on itself. And, and they're ripe, unfortunately, for a lot of people relapsing because they never got that strong foothold. And because, frankly, um, there are a lot of rehabs out there that still insist on a, and a pure sobriety, old school definition as opposed to MAT, which is the evidence form of treatment for people with opioid use disorder. 
Uh, I myself had have titrated off Suboxone, but I was on it for a couple of years in order to for me to manage my addiction to opioids. And if we provided people with Suboxone, it, it quiets the fire in their brain that says that they need to use. The distinction you're making is be, between kind of cold turkey sobriety, the the kind of the uh, uh, Old Testament sort of perspective view of this versus the, the medicine-assisted therapy where you combine the, the, to, to the, the drugs that are targeted to dial down or basically tamp down those fires that are, that are naturally, uh, that, are, that are wired in the brain. Addiction is a physical illness. It's a mental obsession. It's a spiritual malady. We need to treat through reimbursement by insurers the medical illness. But then you need mental health afterwards to address the mental obsession. A lot of that happens through 12-step recovery, which is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. In other words, instead of thinking your way into a new way of acting, you act your way into a new way of thinking. You do it with the support of your colleagues and peers in recovery. Um, and then, of course, the spiritual element is you want to be connected with people, which, of course, the pandemic didn't allow you to do. Obviously, Zoom is good for some, but it misses that chemistry that's so important for people to get, especially if they're new in recovery. And, uh, and they don't have those well-established personal connections in 12-step recovery. Um, so I would just say this is a particularly challenging time. and we need to be prepared to stop deaths. We know we can't get everyone on the road to recovery, but we can stop them dying. But, oh, but, but we've got to be able to do better. I mean, at 100,000 deaths per year from opiates, that's more than died in, in, in Vietnam. I mean, it's, it, the, these are, these are, the numbers are insane. And I thought the numbers had gone down and then they, they started to go up again. I guess, Patrick, is this a partisan issue? What's the, you, we, we talked a little bit about the politics and the policy. Is this a Democrat versus Republican? How would you think about the, the challenge here politically? Well, let me just say on a big picture basis, the, whether you're Democrat or Republican, we're really not even scratching the surface of responding to this. Now, during HIV, for another comparison, we were losing uh, 53,000 lives a year during the height of the AIDS crisis, we started appropriating $24 billion in the congressional budget for tackling the HIV AIDS crisis. Up until three years ago, we were spending less than $3 billion. Now it's, um, it's going to be touching maybe 10, still uh, well under half of what we spent on HIV AIDS. And I might add, we're losing twice as many people as HIV AIDS. So whether you're a Democrat or Republican, the bottom line is we reflect the American public who has not made this a priority because generally speaking, those of us who know someone with addiction are ourselves fed up, frustrated, intolerant, impatient, because these diseases do one thing. They alienate us from the people we love. And the people we love are alienated from us. And they prefer to keep it that way. And there's no motivation for them to go to Congress or the State House, raise their hand and say, I'm a family member of someone with addiction. So it's not a question of D versus R. 
but in the light versus in the darkness. I mean, that's really what we're talking about is, is still that cultural challenge. How do we crack that? So, you know, I think like racism, and we've seen kind of the recognition once again that even despite the advances in the 60s, civil rights laws, voting rights laws, fair housing, fair employment, you look at all the battles today in the last few years, and it's very clear that those uh, divides still plague this country. And yet it's still against the law to discriminate, thank God. So you cannot eradicate bigotry from people's hearts, but you can make it illegal for them to act on that bigotry. What we're not doing today is enforcing anti-discrimination laws like the parity law with payers um, when it comes to them discriminating against people's uh, treatment. And I might say that most people, while they may not love people with addiction, they don't like the idea of the uh, insurance system providers discriminating against people with these illnesses. So we are making progress. Um, and I would say it will take quite some time for us to culturally change our kind of unconscious bias against people with addiction and mental illness. I mean, we walk by them every day on the streets. For conscious bias, I was going to say conscious and unconscious. I think there is a conscious bias because at some level, I don't know, Patrick, is, is, it, is it, it whether it's threatening or fear-based, but one of the things that we love about having you on our podcast is you are fearless in embracing the difficult and the personal because we, we have to, to to hold the system. And it's not just insurers. It's insurers, providers, it's families, it's, it's neighborhoods. We have to embrace these problems if we're going to actually solve them. And I, I just think that for us, you know, your, your, um, your, 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 yours is a very courageous path. I, I would just say for people out there, we know how to solve this crisis. I just want to disabuse people of the notion that no one ever gets better. If we were intervening stage one, just like you do with cancer, we'd be making much better progress. Instead, as everyone knows, who's listening, we do not address people's addictions or mental illness till they're stage four. That's a problem. That's why our worldview is shaped by those people who, quote, never get better. And they're the only ones we know. We can change that if we do things differently. Well, Patrick Kennedy, thank you very much for being a return guest to Care Talk. We're looking forward to uh, sharing with listeners all the work you're doing with the Kennedy Forum, including a couple of uh, very important uh, current uh, webinars, the one you mentioned with Marty Walsh and another one uh, on the anniversary of George Floyd's uh, death, you will be doing as well with David Satcher. Thank you very much. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. Thank you, Patrick, for giving us some courage and some hope on this difficult issue.